How many of you can say that you have somebody that you go to to get godly counsel from? Do you have some people in your life? Do you think that um, leaders don't need godly counsel? You know, I was watching a program the other night, um, and it was telling about the history of the United States, and it chronicled several presidents of the United States. And it talked about that even though we have revisionistic type of history going on in our schools, uh, and in many different places, there were scores of presidents, and even today's uh, President Bush, who were committed to prayer and seeking godly counsel. They would surround themselves uh, at times with uh, Christian leaders. As a matter of fact, in the early history of the United States, there were actually ordained ministers that were part of the roots of the nation. And it was talking about how uh, even in the life of President Bush, that he will seek counsel from uh, chaplains, and, and of course he will often go to his knees in prayer. And when you look at, at a man like Moses, um, and all that Moses has gone through, even though we've seen some of the things that, some of his hesitations in going into ministry and things like this, and Lord, you sure you got the right guy, I can't talk right, and that kind of thing. We're going to see a scene in the Bible where Moses actually gets some counsel uh, of what he should do with a situation. And he's got quite a situation on his hands. And so I want to just throw that out for you tonight. That um, Do you have people that you can go to where you can get godly counsel? Uh, all of us wrestle with different situations. All of us have responsibilities, scenarios that come before us. And we don't always know um, right off the bat what the best thing is. Now, sometimes we can immediately go to a Bible verse and we know, black and white, this is what it says and that's what I'm going to do. But there are other scenarios that aren't quite as easy or maybe not quite as obvious to us. And that's where we need some perspective. And uh, the Bible tells us that there, wisdom is found in many counselors. Uh, now, the Bible doesn't tell us to get counsel from ungodly people, uh, but it tells us to go to people that are godly and can guide us. And so um, there is something to that, and we're going to see a scene in the Bible tonight regarding that. So I guess if you were looking for um, a title for tonight's message, it would be Heeding Good Counsel. Heeding Good Counsel. Now what foreshadows this in Exodus 17, as we looked at last week, is a scene in the Bible where Moses goes on to the top of a hill and the Israelites are fighting down below. You remember that? And Moses, as he lifted up his hands to the Lord with the staff of God in his hand, you remember what happened? Victory was found for Joshua and the Israelite army below. But as he wearied, as the day went on, you remember what happened? The hands began to fall. And so Israel began to lose. So two of his buddies had climbed up the summit with him, namely his brother Aaron and a man named Hur, H-U-R, and they held up Moses' arms. Uh, he needed help. He needed some friends. He was tired. And as they held up his hands, there was victory for Israel. Moses couldn't do it alone. Of course he needed the power of God, but he also needed some brothers uh, literally one physical brother by his side and another who cared for him, obviously. And so we talked last week about how victory is found as we worship God, as we keep our hands up in a life of worship, but we also talked about having good people around us who can hold up our hands. And uh, this is what, what's going to lead into our chapter tonight. So if you look at chapter 18, verse 1, let's pray, Father, 
as we read your words. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Teach us marvelous things. Grow us in our most holy faith. Help us to heed good counsel, especially from the Word of God. But then as we surround ourselves with people who love us, um, help us to also heed that counsel. You tell us in Proverbs that faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Sometimes we need need to hear a hard thing and sometimes, Father, we just need somebody else's perspective. And so I pray that as we look at Jethro and how he sees Moses doing these things and how he counsels him, that we would learn from these things. And if Moses can take counsel, then so can we. And so, Father, we pray tonight that you'll help us to be humble and to be open to your spirit and to be open to godly wisdom into our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro was the priest of Midian, as you'll note here. Um, Commentators, as you study a little bit on Jethro, his name before, or another um, name that that he has or used was Raul. And literally, that name means friend of God. And we find that earlier in the book of Exodus. And so some people think early on that actually Jethro was a worshiper of the true God, although many cultures around Israel worship many gods. And there's a little implication here that Jethro may have believed in more than one God, but he becomes convinced that Yahweh is the true God. And so Jethro, in verse 1, the father-in-law there of Moses, of course, he's the father of Zipporah. You remember uh, when Moses leaves Egypt, uh, he, he traverses across the desert. He comes to Midian. He helps the seven daughters of Jethro who um, are being uh, attacked at the well there. Moses fights them off and he's invited into Jethro's tent. And there Jethro invites him in. There's a little fellowship that takes place. And uh, Jethro offers Moses his daughter Zipporah. And so she becomes his wife. Two sons are born to Moses. Um, We'll get to that in a second. And then there's a scene early on in the book of Exodus, and you might remember it's kind of an odd one in the Bible, where it appears that uh, God is about to kill Moses. And it's because one of his sons is uncircumcised. You remember that? Way back in Exodus chapter 4. And uh, God has determined apparently... Uh, there's a threat on Moses' life from God because Moses is the leader and he has not circumcised one of his sons, which is way back to the book of Genesis now to the Abrahamic covenant. And because of his Midianite wife, uh, apparently they would circumcise males on their wedding night. Uh, Hard to think of that, but that's what they did. And so um, he apparently circumcised one of his children, but not the other. So on the spot... She circumcised the son. And you remember, in a weird scene in the Bible, tossed the foreskin at Moses' feet and said, you are a husband of blood to me. And that was an odd scene. And some believe, as they analyze the story, they don't see Zipporah's name again until this chapter. So they think that maybe she left Moses at that point and went back to her father. Uh, We don't know for sure. We don't have enough information. But we do know that after this particular chapter, Zipporah is not mentioned again. And in Numbers chapter 12, Moses has another Cushite wife. And so I don't know what happened there. Uh, The Bible's silent on it, so we have to be silent. But we do know that something happened in that particular interchange that may have impacted their relationship. But anyways, um, 
Jethro in verse 2, Moses' father-in-law took Moses' wife, Zipporah, and after he had sent her away. So of course I told you that she went back to her father's house and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and that's what uh, Gershom's name means. And the second son here, the other was named Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help. Literally, Eleazar's name means God is my help. And names in the Old Testament especially had great significance. Uh, Unlike today where sometimes we'll just name a child because we think a name sounds cool. Uh, In the Old Testament, names had great significance. They often depicted the character of a person or a child or something that God was doing in light of the birth of that child. So here Eleazar's name means God is my help. And then notice in the end of verse 4 it says, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So now his name is directly tied to the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, which is quite interesting. Then Jethro, verse 5, Moses' father-in-law came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he, he was camped at the Mount of God. If you're interested, the Mount of God is likely Mount Horeb, H-O-R-E-B. And uh, we know from, if you look at Exodus 17, verse 1, that the children of Israel are camped at a place called Rephidim. And uh, there, there was there no water to drink. So here's where they are. They're at the Mount of God. Jethro, Mo- Moses' father-in-law, comes now into the camp. He's heard about the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. He's heard about the great acts of God on behalf of Israel. We don't know that he got reports from the caravans which would move through uh, th- that part of the world and also perhaps more information from Moses' wife. But Jethro knows that God has been mighty on behalf of Israel and that Moses is their leader. And the caravans would often bring news of things that happen in the world and, and actually news would travel fairly fast even in the ancient world. And so he knows about what's happened in this particular instance. Um, if you uh, want a little highlight of that, hold your Bible in Exodus 18 and turn to Joshua for a second. Joshua chapter 2. So you got uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. Now the children of Israel are headed into the promised land. Joshua chapter 2. And uh, Joshua has sent a couple of spies in to spy out Jericho. Remember Jericho? What was Jericho famous for? The big wall, right? And so look at Joshua 2 verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, N-U-N, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about, when it was time to shut the gate at dark, that the men went out, and I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Now she lied. Yes, she lied. Is there such a thing as sanctified lying? Uh, this is a possible category we must consider. If you were hiding Jewish slaves in Nazi Germany 
and the Nazis came to your door and said, do you have any Jews here? Would you lie? Of course you would. You would have to because you would not want to give them away. That's such a thing as what we'd call a sanctified lie. Now that doesn't give you free license to lie to everybody. Uh, but there are, God does not want us bearing false witness or intentionally deceiving because lies are always connected. Listen to me closely. Lies are always, if well, I should say, just about always connected to preserving me. I lie to make myself look good. That's what God hates. He hates a person that goes about lying because self is on the throne. Okay? Now, so, this is for your consideration tonight. But there is such a thing, if you were in Nazi Germany and the Nazis came to your door and you were hiding Jews, you should lie. You should say that there are no Jews in my house. Okay? And I believe that even if God saw that as wrong, he would forgive you. <laughs> but I don't think he would. So she lies. And she's going to be honored for it. Now, she had brought them up on to the roof, verse 6, and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as uh, those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she, she came up to them on the roof, and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Verse 10, For we have heard, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. So I just want you to take note there in Joshua 2.10 especially, that they had heard about the drying up of the Red Sea and the crossing of Israel. And through the caravans, news would travel quickly. And so this is how we believe that uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, if you turn back to Exodus 18, knows what's going on. Uh, he knows what's happened among the people of Israel and Egypt. So as you turn back to Exodus 18, you'll notice that uh, the arrival of Jethro now, the father-in-law of Moses, coming into the camp near Mount Horeb has, uh, has occurred, and Moses, verse 7, went out to meet his father-in-law, and would you note, and he bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Now Moses bows down before Jethro and kisses him, which was, by the way, a custom uh, in that day of respect. He's not worshiping Jethro, but he is paying him heed as his elder and as the father of his wife. And remember that Moses was taken into Jethro's tent. He was a visitor in a foreign land. He came under the authority of Jethro. And as a matter of fact, you might recall that back when Moses was being called by God and God was saying, I want you to go back to Egypt. You're my man, Moses. Moses sought the approval of Jethro. He went to his father-in-law and said, God's calling me to do this. Is this okay? I'm going to leave. So somehow he had come under the authority of Jethro's household and therefore, in a polite way, in a respectful way, asked for his um, approval to leave. Which... Uh, to me is probably more of a statement of Moses' character than anything else. God was going to use Moses, but Moses went back to his father-in-law and said, look, Jethro, I got a boogie. <laughs> I got to go. 
Okay, God's calling me. Now, who was Jethro to stand against, you know, God's call? But it reminds me today, and especially, you know, we have a few young people in here tonight, about the issue of respect. And about as you grow older, you know, some of the old ways are good ways. Going to uh, a a young lady's uh, father and asking for approval for a date, or perhaps at some point down the road for her hand in marriage. That is a respectful thing to do. It's a good thing. It's a right thing. And it will certainly ingratiate you with the family. <laughs> so, but you shouldn't have that kind of motive. I'm not saying that you should do it for that reason. But anyway. And so notice that uh, Moses bows down. He kisses him. There's a, a reuniting here. A friendly reunited. They talk about each other's welfare. The New American Standard puts it that way. That's a Hebrew word, by the way. Shalom, where we get the word peace. Uh, and it's translated welfare here, but it is shalom. How are things been going for you? Are you doing okay? Is there peace in your life? Is that kind of exchange? And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. And I want you to notice as Moses tells the story, what does he say all that who had done? The Lord had done. He doesn't puff himself up. He doesn't say, hey man, let me tell you about my great hand in delivering. No, he says all the Lord had done. For Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. What kind of hardship, you might ask? Well, uh, first of all, they were a little thirsty, and that was a hardship. Then they were hungry, that was a hardship. Or hungry and thirsty, it went in one of those orders. And there was a lot of whining, and then there was a war with the Amalekites. And Moses had gone through a lot just in taking these people to the degree that he had uh, so far. And so he tells Jethro, he says, man, you wouldn't believe it. Not only did God with a strong hand deliver us and the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and the pillar of fire and all that happened, but even when we were thirsty, he made bitter water sweet. And when we were hungry, he sent this manna from heaven and we came out every morning and it was always there. And then uh, we had the problem of the whining and God satisfied their need. And then we had a war. And the Amalekites are warring people and we didn't really even have an army that was uh, trained. But God, again, just by the raising of my hands, Jethro, man, we won the war. God delivered us. And Jethro, verse 9, rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. Notice that Jethro rejoices at the good news. And so Jethro said, and this sure sounds like Jethro's a believer. He said, blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And notice Jethro, I think he has a faith moment here. He says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly proudly against the people. And here, probably a reference back to Egypt, how Egypt was proud and they were uh, beating up the children of Israel and uh, had them in slavery. And, and Jethro says, man, now I know that the God you serve, Moses, is God. And there are psalms in your Bible, if you're interested, we could turn to a few, that talk about um, God being greater than all the other gods. Let's, let's take a look at a few. Hold your finger in Exodus and turn to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. Now, when the Bible talks about other gods with a small g, is the Bible saying that there are, there's more than one true God? Is it? I mean, the Bible acknowledges other gods, doesn't it? 
And so if it acknowledges other gods, then the Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, that means that there's more than one God and Jesus can be a lesser God than Jehovah. And the Mormons can say, well, even Satan's called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And so if Satan's called a God and Moses acted as a God before Pharaoh and the Bible talks about other gods, as a matter of fact, even in the Ten Commandments, have no other gods before me, then is the Bible acknowledging that there's other gods besides the one true God? Uh, well, yes and no. Yes and no. See, the Bible makes it clear that there's only one true God that is by nature. But a God with a small g is any other thing that you try to put on par with God or above God. It doesn't make it true in terms of the true God by nature, but it, it's something that you're putting up equal with God. For example, uh, if the children of Israel, and they did, made their golden calf when God was up giving the Ten Commandments to Moses, and they partied around the golden calf and worshipped it and everything else, and they said, this is our God who brought us out of the land of Egypt. Now they said that was their God. Did that make that golden calf that was made out of their bracelets and whatever else a true God? No, you can call anything a God. As a matter of fact, if you drive around Corona on a Sunday morning, you'll see a bunch of people waxing their God every Sunday morning. It happens, folks. You see, a God, a, a, a God that you put before the God of the Bible is something that you worship either alongside Him. You say, I can worship God, but I can elevate this thing to God's status or in the place of Him. And that's what God doesn't want. And when you do that, by the way, if you choose any other God other than the true God of the Bible, then you're worshiping a false God. It could be called a God, but it's not the one true God, He by nature. So notice Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Psalm 95, 1. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Small g again. In whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for it is He who made it. And His hands form the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. Look at Psalm 96, verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared, here it is again, above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples, now here's your answer, are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. You see, if you have a idol, that idol can't walk, it can't talk, it can't hear, it can't do anything for you. As a matter of fact, in the ancient times, you made your idol. You went out, you cut down a tree, you crafted your little idol, you made sure it didn't totter too much, you made sure it weebled and wobbled, but it didn't fall down, and then you worshipped it. How stupid, says God. You made that thing and then you bow down to it. There's a story in the Old Testament about the god Dagon. 
and uh, how uh, I think it was the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant or captured the Ark. And so the Ark of the Covenant and God was you know, definitely present there was brought into the Philistine temple where Dagon, their God was, you know, some sort of statue type thing. And so the Ark was in there and Dagon was next to the Ark. And of course when the Ark was there, all of a sudden Dagon went, bam! Dagon went down in the presence of the Ark. And they try to pick up old Dagon. Oh, our God, our God's fallen and he can't get up. You know? So they picked up Dagon. You know? And then he fell again and smashed into some pieces. Your God is broken. You've got to get your Elmer's glue. You know, you're like, hey. That's no God at all. You can call anything a God, but there's only one true and living God. And so Jethro, turn back to Exodus, has a revelation. Hey, Moses, you're right. There's only one true God. And his name is I am. His name is Yahweh. And so here's how he responds. He says, I know the Lord, Exodus 18, 11, is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. How many gods did Egypt have, by the way? Oh, many, many, many gods. As a matter of fact, remember, each one of the plagues of the Exodus is a direct attack on the gods of Egypt. So God made a mockery of their gods. Then Jethro, verse 12, Moses' father-in-law took a burnt offering. That is, he brought an animal for the offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came, this Moses' brother now, with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. So they're doing something in a sacrificial way and fellowshipping. And it came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood about Moses from morning to until the evening. Now, after Jethro hangs out a little bit, he's reunited with Moses. He gets to go to a work day with Moses. You ever been to a work day with your parent before? You know, you ever done that kind of thing? And he gets to see what Moses' everyday life looks like among the children of Israel. What does Jethro see? It came about the next day that Moses, verse 13, sat to judge the people. And the people stood about Moses from morning until evening. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Can you imagine the size of the line they had in this area? I mean, there were about two million people. Imagine all the cases that Moses had to hear. The law was kind of up and coming and new to the people. And so they would have squabble after squabble. Oh, you know, you guys, you parents can deal with this with your kids, right? He touched me. He took my doll. You know, and you got to try to sit in judgment and try to figure out oh, what happened here and how you can work through all of this stuff. Well, this is what Moses is doing with two million whiners. Talk about a tough day. And the father-in-law has come for a visit and he looks and he says, man, Moses, you're crazy. What are you doing? The people stand around all day long. You're given case after case. He says, this is not a good thing. Why do you sit alone? Why do you, the people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. What am I going to do? You know, they all have questions. When they have a dispute, it comes to me and I judge between a man and his neighbor and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out. Now, if you like to underline your Bible, would you underline that verse? 
you will surely wear out. See, Moses, the thing that Moses was doing was not bad, but the fact that he was the only one doing it was the bad part. How could he possibly deal with all these people? You are surely going to wear out. Now, it's been kind of the running joke with pastors that the pastor is supposed to wear, you know, every hat in the church. He's supposed to answer the phone and he's supposed to clean the carpet and he's supposed to do the baptisms. He's supposed to do the dedications and the, and the uh, memorial services and he's supposed to show up when people are sick at the hospital, make home visitations. And, and you know, this job description, uh, sooner or later, it will kill somebody. And so that's why it's important that other people step up in a fellowship and uh, other people do as much as they can to support the work of the ministry. And the ministry is not about necessarily supporting a man as it is us all walking in our gifts and doing what God's called us to do. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. It's not about just one individual. And so Jethro has some life wisdom, doesn't he? And he appears to be maybe a newer believer, but he says, man, you're going to wear out both yourself and these people who are with you for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. These people are going to get upset because how long do you think they had to wait to talk to you? I mean, I don't know if you guys turn on daytime television, but when I was sick last week, I turn on, I can't believe how many judge shows there are. Can you guys believe how many court shows there are? Texas Justice and this lady and that lady. It's unbelievable. And the people are fighting over the most dumb things. That you've ever, you could ever imagine. She scratched my car and he snatched your tires. Oh man, I can see why these judges get upset as quickly as they do. And so he says, you can't do this alone, Moses. Now, what would Moses say at this point? Hey, hey Chethro, I don't know if you've seen my business card. And I don't know if you've seen my resume. But I just brought two million people out of Egypt. Okay. Um, here directly, face to face, meet with God. I got the staff of God in my hand. Uh, I don't know if you know who I am, but I'm the man. <laughs> I don't need counsel from my father-in-law, right? And he's, by the way, he's an, he's an in-law. I mean, come on. You don't take advice from in-laws, right? Usually they're called outlaws. But anyway, so, so Moses is the man. But why should Moses listen to this Jethro? He's the judge. He stands and judges these cases all day long. Now this guy's coming and telling him how to run his business? Can you believe it? What, what do you think your response would be? Uh, excuse me, Jethro, but <laughs> I hear directly from God and, you know, come on, I don't need your counsel. But what did Moses do? Look at the next verse. He says this. He says, now listen to me. I shall give you counsel and God be with you. He says, you be the people's representative before God and, and, bring your, uh, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. And you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, and of fifties and tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And if you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. 
And all these people also will go to their place in peace. And so Moses, verse 24, listened to his father-in-law and did all that he said. Isn't it interesting that even though Moses had all this power and authority and heard from God all the time, Jethro gave him advice and he heeded it. He listened to the counsel. Now, I want you to notice that as this unfolds, this plan unfolds in verse 21, there's a very important verse that talks about the characteristics of the men that were to be selected. Um, scholars believe that among these couple million people, there were over 78,000 judges. Over 78,000 men that had to be selected, if that number's correct. Okay, we're talking about a lot of selections. So we needed a little criteria list now. What are these men to look like? Verse 21 shows you. You shall select out of the people, number one, able men. Speaks of strength, of character. Number two, who fear God. That not only speaks of a phobia in, in the sense of I, I fear God, but in the sense of they reverence God in their lives. They have a healthy fear of God. Number three, they are to be men of, what does it say there? Truth. Men of truth. Number three, uh, men, the implication here, who are trustworthy. Men who you can have confidence in, who have proven faithfulness. Look for these kinds of guys. Number four, men who what? Hate dishonest gain. Oh, that the ministries in America would make this a prerequisite for the ministry. Men who hate dishonest gain. I could tell you for the next two hours uh, what that has done as a blight to the church and how many people in the name of God are ripping off people in our society and how it has marred the testimony of the church. But we don't have enough time for that. And you shall place these over them as leaders, notice, of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. This is why we believe there's so many judges. But look at that list. Able men, fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. And these are the ones that are be, to be placed over the people. Now, if you've studied your Bible at all, you know that as the New Testament begins to unfold, there's a call for church leadership. And the call for church leadership is found in some uh, primary passages, and you might want to write these down. Acts 6, especially verse 3, where there's a call for deacons. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, where there's a call uh, for elders. And Titus 1, 6 through 9. If you're interested, I have a copy of uh, a couple of passages pertaining to this. And uh, these are the qualifications for elders. I'm going to read this list to you, and I, I want to share this with you. Um, oftentimes, people have looked at the qualifications of elders, and they've said that that list is unreasonable. Uh, no one could ever lift, live up to the qualifications for elders. I'll tell you this. The qualifications for elders as listed here are realistic in this sense, that they have to do with a pattern of life. They have to do with a consistent testimony. And here, here's some things that... 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 talk about. Number one, an elder is to be above reproach. That means that no specific charge of violating God's word can be brought against him. Someone can accuse him of doing something wrong, but no one should have a charge against him that could stick. 
In other words, no one should be able to walk in that door tonight and say, Pastor Michael doesn't pay his taxes. Nobody should be able to walk in that door and say, I saw Pastor Michael steal this or whatever. You get the point. No open charge that could stick. Number two, he must be a man. And of course, that's controversial. He should be married if possible. And he must be devoted to his wife and loyal beyond question. Uh, the literal translation is he is a one-woman man. And the sense of the text means that there's no doubt that he's committed to his spouse. Now, there's a debate in the Christian church about whether or not a man could have been uh, biblically gone through a divorce and still be an elder. And we would argue that a man could still be an elder, even if he went through a biblical divorce. Um, there's uh, uh, debates about whether a single man can serve as an elder. A single man, in my view, can serve as an elder. Uh, but this has to do, again, with the character of the man. Is he committed to his wife in the sense of a one-woman man? And here's the idea. Is he a womanizer? Is he known uh, to be out there and, and flirting and doing things to dishonor his marriage? Number three, he's to be tempered or self-controlled. The definition here is he's sober and calm in judgment, clear in his thinking and perspective. He must not be a man who's suddenly upset or quick to retaliate or one who's, uh, he should be one who's able to control his sensual appetites. You ought not to see an elder in a church in a fist fight at Home Depot. If you do, there's something wrong with the man who's in leadership. Okay, number four, he is to be prudent or sensible. This speaks of the quality of his mind that he is humble and sound in his evaluations of his abilities and gifts. Now, he's not going to be perfect, but he has a good sense of who he is. He knows that it's only by the grace of God that he can do the ministry. Okay? And I can go down the list. Uh, respectable, hospitable. He's to be able to teach. He's not to be addicted to wine. It uh, doesn't mean, in my view, again, he can't have a glass of wine, but he, he's not to be addicted to wine. He's not to be someone who drinks and gets drunk in that sense. He's not to be quick-tempered. That is, he's not to be one who's quick to throw blows. He's to be gentle with people. He's able to deal with difficult people, uncontentious, uh, free from the love of money, says 1 Timothy 3. And Titus 1.7 says he's not found, fond of sordid gain. He didn't enter into the ministry to become a millionaire. He's not selling the prosperity doctrine. He's not telling people, I drive a Rolls Royce because I'm following in the footsteps of Jesus. He actually lives a reasonable lifestyle. He's not living a lifestyle of a millionaire as he fleeces the flock of God. I will tell you that there was a program on, probably no more than a year ago, on Benny Hinn. And they began to follow Benny Hinn around the country. And whether or not you like Benny Hinn, uh, we can talk later about him, but here's what they discovered. He was staying in hotel rooms that were upwards of 14, well, 12 to $14,000 a night. Staying in presidential suites as he went on his different crusades. Spending well over $10,000 a night on a hotel room. Now there's something wrong. Private jet, everything. Okay? Whose money is he using to stay in those hotel rooms? And is it reasonable to spend twelve dollars or $14,000 on a hotel room for one night with the money that the people of God give to his ministry? Do you want to stand behind Benny Hinn on Judgment Day? At the Bema Seat of Christ when he took the people's money and spent it on living in the lap of luxury? I mean, let's call it what it is. The emperor has no clothes. It's just flat out wrong. And to me, this 
text is saying if, a, if you have a man like that, he is unqualified to be in the ministry because his God is money. Or at least he's put that on par with Jesus Christ. Talks about not being a new convert, ruling your own house well, not being self-willed, loving what is good, being just and devout. First um, Peter five four says the same thing: we are to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And so, uh, for those of you who maybe God's been calling you into deeper. Uh, areas of ministry. Um, I was I met with a guy the other day, and I I told him about a quote from A. W. Tozer, and the quote from A. W. Tozer goes like this: Before God can use a man greatly, he must break that man greatly. And I'll tell you what: in the ministry, um, this is what God does: He breaks you of your self-will, of your pride, of your ego. And, he tra- and, he, and he's still working on me. <laughs> and he teaches you that you must rely upon him. The ministry is not about you. It's about God. This is God's church. This is Jesus Christ is the head. He is the chief shepherd. I am simply an under shepherd. And every one of us who are involved in ministry, that's the story. We're simply under shepherds. We're simply serving our king because of all that he's done for us. And in Numbers 12, I think it's verse 3, it says that Moses was the most humble man that walked the face of the earth. And here's a lesson for us tonight. Sometimes we think that we've arrived at a place in life where we we don't need counsel. We don't need someone to come into our life and tell us what to do or what we should think about. But if we ever get to that point, we're in trouble, you guys. And Moses' position lent itself for the possibility of great pride. Here he is deciding case after case after case. Everybody's coming to him as the answer man. And if he wasn't open to counsel from others, he could be in deep trouble. And everybody would probably just facilitate that. Well, no one can question Moses. He's the man of God. See, if you ever get to that point, you're in danger. You've got to be open to what God can do through other people. Now, it doesn't mean that every uh, nut, flake, and raisin that comes <laughs> across uh, and says, God told me to tell you this, you ought to listen to. You ought to weigh what they say, use the discernment of the Holy Spirit, and test it by the Scriptures. But ultimately, we ought to be open, too. Even David said, who, who knows if this guy's not speaking for the Lord? I don't know. But I, I'm not going to make a quick judgment and say that I can't learn something or someone can't bring a word to me that should open my eyes in regard to a matter. And I tell you, it's easy uh, for all of us to become puffed up. But Moses, in verse um, 24, listened to his father-in-law. Do you think Moses was a happier man after that? I mean, can you imagine all those people he had to judge and now he had all this help. They brought the bigger matters to him. Uh, but he was indeed a man who was open to the counsel of others. And so just remember that list there in verse 21. If you're ever looking for a list in the Old Testament regarding elders or leaders, they should be able men who fear God, men of truth, men who hate dishonest gain. And notice they hate it. They don't, don't, they don't just not practice dishonest gain. They hate it. They hate what it does and how, what it uh, says to people who look on. Verse 25. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. 
And they judged the people at all times. The difficult dispute they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. And then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went his way into his own land. Now, um, with that, we're going to close with a final section of Scripture. It's found in Deuteronomy. If you turn over there, Deuteronomy chapter 1. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. By the way, the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses, often called the Pentateuch in Greek. And these have to do especially with the law. But Deuteronomy chapter 1, um, this is the fifth book written by Moses, kind of the summing up of many things here. And Moses is going to tell the story about what happened to him. So look at Deuteronomy chapter 1 and look at verse 8. See, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to them and their descendants after them. And I spoke to you at that time saying, I'm not able to bear the burden of you alone. The Lord your God has multiplied you and behold, you are this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you, just as he has promised you. Verse 12. How can I alone bear the load and burden of you and your strife? Choose wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes, and I will point them as your heads. Now this tells us how they did it. And you answered me and said, the thing which you have said to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you, leaders of thousands and of hundreds and of fifties and of tens, and officers for your tribes, verse 16. Then I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen, or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment, You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. In the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul was talking about the church, he talked about judging among the people of God. And he said this, he said, you know what? I don't understand what you guys are doing. I'm paraphrasing. He said, but you guys take each other to the secular courts. He says, you have a matter and you can't solve it in the church, so you go to court against each other and you sue one another. And he talked about how it was wrecking the testimony of the church. And it's not just Israel that this has been a problem, but it's been the people of God through the ages, hasn't it? You know, we've all heard the stories, you know, they have the uh, church dinner and... uh, there's a big fiasco that happens at the church dinner and the church ends up in court. And I'm talking about secular court and they're suing one another. And the pastor and elders are suing this person or the ex-pastor is suing this person. And they find out, what's this case all about? And they track it. And in one particular instance, true story, they found out that the whole church fight started over an elder who was at a church dinner and got a smaller piece of prime rib than a kid sitting next to him. And that's what started the whole squabble leading to a whole court case in the church. The church gets a black eye because so many people operate in their flesh. And when I say that, 
we all could say, I've done that before. I've treated someone uh, I've had an issue with, maybe and not in the best light. Uh, maybe I haven't been as open to counsel as I should have been. Uh, maybe I should have looked a little closer at some of my Old Testament heroes to know that they were open to counsel. They knew that they didn't do things perfectly every time. And uh, that's me too. You know, I've made my share of mistakes. I know you have too. But as we're open, as we're humble before God, as we say, God, you know what? Take this situation where I handle this poorly and bring a Jethro into my life and help me listen and help me to act and help me to uh, honor you in the way I respond to people. No matter what my station in life, no matter if I'm the boss of a company, the pastor of a church, um, whatever my lot in life is, I can be open. I can be teachable. I can have other people illumine my eyes to things that can make my life and walk with the Lord better. And uh, that's, that's really the test of where we've come as people, is whether or not we can be teachable. Abraham Lincoln said one time that uh, he was driven to his knees every day in prayer by the overwhelming uh, demands of his schedule, if I can paraphrase this quote. He said he was driven to his knees every single day with the demands of being the President of the United States. And uh, how, how often do we go about our business and we've got to make judgments and decisions, some small and some big. Do we pray? Uh, are we seeking godly counsel? Are we open? This is the way the Lord works. He'll, he'll take someone, sometimes haven't you experienced this, you know, you'll be going through something, wrestling with something, and you'll be open and you'll flip on the radio and a preacher's talking just about that thing you're going through. And you go, wow. That cannot be a coincidence. That cannot be an accident. And God's trying to get a message to you. Listen to me. I can speak through donkeys. I can speak through father-in-laws. I can speak through many ways to get your attention. I told you guys uh, not so long ago about a story I heard uh, shared by another pastor, a Calvary Chapel pastor, and he said that there was a guy driving around uh, a neighborhood and he was really trying to find out uh, and be open to the voice of God. And so, um, as he was driving around, he felt like God was telling him to go to this specific address. And so, he went to it, and he said, God, is this really you? And, and um, God, this is the, how the story goes, true story, directed this guy to open up a mailbox in front of this home address and yell into the mailbox, Jesus loves you! <laughs> Jesus loves you. And he's yelling this into this mailbox. He goes, I'm a, I've got to be a nut. You know, this can't be the voice of God. Well, inside the house that day, there was a man getting ready to commit suicide. And he said to God before he was going to take his life, I won't kill myself if I just know that you love me, God. And the man was open to the voice of the Spirit and pulled over and did what God told him to do. And the man didn't take his life. You know, sometimes we tune out, don't we? We think, ah, oh, you know, I'm just doing this. God can't speak to me in this situation. He can't speak to me when I'm sitting at this desk. Only when I'm in that chair at church. No, 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 no. Your God is God over everything. And he can speak to us in every situation. So we've got to be open. Even through in-laws, it can come. <laughs> God can bring wisdom. And there's wisdom found in many counselors and sometimes found in the voice of an, uh, a person who's been around for a while. Jethro was older. He had life experience. And he said, Moses, you're going to kill yourself. You need help. 
And I would just say to you, as the body of Christ, as the church, um, you are needed too. We all need to step up, don't we, in the church. The church is not a spectator sport. It's an army of witnesses. It's an organic body where everyone engages their gifts to bring glory to the head who is Jesus Christ. We can't sit around and be lazy when it comes to the things of God. We don't want to have a Moses who's trying to do everything and judge every case and deal with every person. It doesn't work. It ends up putting a little plug in, in, the, in the funnel. But when everybody's doing their part, when each part of the body, Ephesians 4, does its share, it causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Too many Christians sitting on their hands today, folks, not engaged in the ministry to which God's called them. I'll leave you with this final thought. As God was calling me into the ministry when I was a younger man, um, <clears throat> I was wrestling with God on some issues in my life and he had gotten rid of a lot of baggage. And the old uh, illustration I always loved was the hot air balloon image of uh, you had the hot air balloon and bags of sand in it and, and uh, as you th- threw out a bag of sand, the balloon would rise higher. You threw out another bag and the balloon would go higher. That's kind of how my life was. I had a lot of bags of sand and God was chucking them out one by one and I was getting a little closer to God, a little closer, a little closer. And so God was dealing with me on some things and he was really heavily calling me into the ministry and I was holding on to a couple things in my life. And God, as close as I can get to an audible voice, and I'm not saying I heard the voice, but it was in my heart, was saying, decide. Are you going to follow me? I'm calling you to preach, but I want you to get rid of that bag of sand. I kept going, but God, it's comfortable, and I kind of like it. Get rid of it. Chuck it. Get closer to me. And that's what the Christian life is all about. So I turned on the radio when I was going through all this stuff, and I heard a pastor talking, and he said he had a dream. And his dream was that he went back to his old life. He he had been a pastor for years. He went back to his old life, started dealing drugs again, and got caught up in all kinds of stuff and died. And he said he was up in heaven. This is in his dream now. And God put his arm around this guy and showed him all the things that he had for him. And God said something to this effect. This is everything I had for you had you only obeyed me. And I remember that struck me. And I'm not saying that dream is the Bible, but I am saying that dream struck me at the point of life that I was at to where God used it to say, Michael, is that you? Are you going to obey me and fulfill your ministry? Or are you going to sit around and cling to your little bag of sand? What's it going to be? Listen to my voice. Follow. And I'll take you to places that you can't imagine. And I'll do it by the power of the Spirit. Father, thank you so much for your great love and this lesson from the book of Exodus. We know from Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 10 that these were things were written for our instruction. Um, they are there for us to learn. And so, Lord, this particular lesson is important. So many different things that we can all learn from. How Moses responded to Jethro and how there was a solution that Um, helped Israel for a long time. Give us that wisdom, Father. We need it so desperately. Help us to be uh, mindful of your voice. Um, Help us to be sensitive, God. So often we go throughout our day and we fail to pray. So often we have so many other voices that we've tuned into and we've tuned you out. 
And Lord, I know that we're going to be wearied and we're going to wear out like Moses would have if we don't listen. And so, Father, help us to listen. Help us to be on our knees. None of us has arrived. We've all made mistakes. We've all handled things poorly. But Moses is a model of someone of high position who is still teachable, still open, still ready to hear solutions. Let that, let that be true of us, God. Let us most of all listen for your voice. But let us also be open to godly counselors around us who can encourage us and call us to the right kind of life. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the wonderful people that you've surrounded us with, Lord, that have been friends in times of heaviness, held up our hands, and come alongside us in so many wonderful ways. I know there's people directly in my life who give so much, and they're volunteers, but they give because they love you. And I'm so grateful for them, Lord, and I just pray you'll encourage them tonight that what they're doing matters. Nothing that we do for the Lord will be in vain. So let us be about your business. Encourage your saints tonight to keep on doing the works of God, for they will reap if they do not grow weary. And Lord, tonight, as we think about our church and the church across the United States and the world, we pray for revival. We pray that it will start with us and carry out to our families and to our churches. Help us to go out there this week and share the gospel. Help us to lead our families well. And help us, Father, to bring you glory each and every day that we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.